Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel, serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any of you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today, we are going to talk about the princes in the tower, which a lot of people have asked us to talk about. This almost became part of an unearthed episode earlier on this year because a paper came out that argued a direct link between Richard III and then the alleged murderers and then Sir Thomas More, whose account of what happened has really dominated popular understanding of all this. But we've gotten so many listener requests for a Princess in the Tower episode that I decided I was just going to hold on to that (laughs) Do a full episode about it instead of a paragraph on Unearthed. There you go. So this happened during the War of the Roses, which started in 1455 and was a struggle between two rival branches of the Royal House of Plantagenet, the House of York and the House of Lancaster. Both houses used various badges, symbols, and emblems to represent themselves, and among those were a white rose for the House of York and a red rose for the House of Lancaster. The name Wars of the Roses comes from these symbols, although that term was not coined until later on. One of the people who really popularized this connection was William Shakespeare, who used a lot of red and white roses in his plays about this period of British history. 
So, the Wars of the Roses is not the only term in this episode that was coined much, much later. Another is the Princes in the Tower. This nickname seems to have come into use in the 19th century to refer to King Edward V and his brother, Richard of Shrewsbury, Duke of York. They were the sons of King Edward IV of the House of York, and they were not princes when they were in the Tower, which we will get to. They were also a little bit older than they look in a lot of artwork. Edward was 12, and Richard was about to turn 10. But there are some paintings where they look more like 10 and 8, or maybe even younger than that. (laughs) I was looking at one. I was like, these two look like toddlers here. They were definitely not toddlers. (laughs) Still kids. The conflict between the houses of York and Lancaster had been going on for about 15 years by the time Edward V was born. His father, Edward IV, had become king in 1461 after a revolt against Lancastrian King Henry VI. A strategic marriage could have given Edward IV more power and solidified his reign during this extremely turbulent time, and his cousin, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, tried to negotiate a marriage to a French princess to that end. But instead, on May 1st, 1464, Edward secretly married Elizabeth Woodville, which some sources today spell as Woodville. Edward and Elizabeth kept this marriage secret for months, and according to documents from the time, they announced their marriage around September of 1464 because Elizabeth was pregnant. But if that's the case, that pregnancy did not come to term. The couple's first child, Elizabeth of York, wasn't born until 1466. Regardless, as soon as word spread about the king's secret marriage, it was extremely unpopular. Elizabeth was the widow of Sir John Grey, a Lancastrian who had been killed in battle while fighting against the Yorks. The Woodville family also just did not have the kind of power that Edward really needed. They were gentry, they were not royalty, and they were viewed as a bunch of scheming opportunists. Right from the beginning, there were rumors that this marriage was not legal and that any children Edward and Elizabeth might have would have no legitimate claim to the throne. This kind of rumor was not new. There had been allegations that Edward himself was not legitimate. During the Wars of the Roses, the English throne repeatedly passed back and forth between the Yorks and the Lancasters. In the late 1460s, Edward lost a lot of his more powerful supporters, including the Earl of Warwick, who tried to imprison the king in late 1469 before fleeing to France. Warwick returned with a Lancastrian invasion that was backed by King Louis XI. In October of 1470, Henry VI's supporters freed him from the Tower of London and returned him to the throne. Edward fled to Flanders, and Elizabeth and their children took refuge at Westminster Abbey. At this point, Edward and Elizabeth had three daughters, Elizabeth, Mary, and Cecily. But on November 2nd, 1470, Elizabeth gave birth to another child while at Westminster Abbey, and that was a son named Edward. Edward IV returned from exile in 1471 with the help of Charles of Burgundy and Edward's brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester. The Yorks defeated the Lancasters at the Battle of Tewkesbury on May 4th, 1471, Warwick had already been killed at the Battle of Barnet in April, and many of the most powerful Lancastrian leaders were killed at Tewkesbury or were executed afterward. 
This included Henry VI's son and heir. Henry himself was captured, returned to the Tower of London, and then murdered there. With Edward IV back on the throne, his son, Edward V, became the Prince of Wales. Before long, the prince was sent to Ludlow Castle to be educated and prepared to rule. His uncle, Anthony Woodville, Earl Rivers, was designated as his guardian and instructed to make sure the prince was, quote, virtuously, cunningly, and knightly brought up. The prince also had a doctor, a nurse, a daily schedule that involved lessons and exercise and religious observance and instruction, and, quote, noble stories read to him each night as he ate his dinner. The king and queen went on to have several more children. Five daughters survived into adulthood. Those were Elizabeth, Cecily, Anne, Catherine, and Bridget. A second son, Richard, was born in 1473 and named Duke of York in 1474. A third son, George, followed in 1477, but died when he was about two. Of course, all of the fighting between the houses of York and Lancaster and Edward's reign had a lot more going on than we can really get into here. But in terms of the Wars of the Roses, things were relatively stable from the death of Henry VI until 1483, when King Edward IV unexpectedly died after an illness. Before his death, he named his brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, as Lord Protector. Edward IV's death was announced on April 9th, 1483, but he really probably died a few days before that. It seems like Elizabeth delayed the announcement so that she could try to secure the Whitville family's political future, one in which they would have as much power and influence over the new king as possible. This may have included Elizabeth even trying to act as regent for her 12-year-old son, although at this point in English history, it would have been a lot more common for the regent to be male. Elizabeth sent word to her brother, Anthony Whitville, Earl Rivers, to inform him of Edward IV's death and arrange to have his son, who was now King Edward V, brought to London for his coronation. Edward V learned of his father's death on April 14, 1483, and he and his uncle left for London on the 23rd, after St. George's Day observances. In what seems to have been an intentional move, the Queen Mother did not notify her late husband's brother, Richard Duke of Gloucester, of Edward IV's death. This may have been because of her efforts to secure her family's position, or it may have been because of long-standing deep animosity between Richard and the Whitvilles. There is really a ton of backstory here, but among other things, Richard and Edward's brother, George Plantagenet, Duke of Clarence, had resented the amount of power that was going to the Whitville family, and George's various schemes and allegations had ultimately led to his execution in 1478. That was something that Richard blamed Elizabeth for, at least in part. Richard did not learn about his brother's death until April 20th, likely through William Lord Hastings, who had been Edward IV's Chamberlain. The Duke immediately set off to meet up with his nephew, the King, who was en route to London. So there are people who believe that it was at this point, or maybe even earlier, that Richard started plotting to take the throne for himself. And if that's the case, he really had to work quickly. Because if he was not successful before Edward was formally crowned, it would just become a lot harder for him to do it. And on the other hand, Elizabeth Whitbill was also working very quickly, hoping to get Edward crowned as soon as possible, 
Because at this point, Richard's role as Lord Protector was supposed to end with his nephew's coronation, and that could potentially open the door for the Whitvilles to step in and take control. So Elizabeth tried to arrange the coronation for May 4th, which was less than a month after the death of Edward IV. We'll continue to untangle all of this stuff after we first pause for a little sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, 
you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet, and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. some question marks about pretty much everything we're going to talk about for the entire rest of this episode. For some of it, we have concrete documentation of some basic details, like X happened and then Y happened and then Z happened. But we don't have firsthand documentation of people's motivations for X, Y, and Z. Sometimes we don't know who actually carried those things out. Sometimes accounts even contradict on the basic facts of X, Y, and Z. In general, though, most sources agree that Richard, Duke of Gloucester, was plotting, at minimum, to get rid of the Whitville family and its influence over the king, but probably to steal the throne for himself. And that's not just people like Sir Thomas More, whose history of King Richard III has sometimes been characterized as anti-Richard propaganda. Italian monk Dominic Mancini was in London during these events and wrote an official report in December of 1483, one that Moore and other writers would not have had access to, but it corroborates a lot of basic details and reports a ton of gossip that was circulating. Yeah, there are some questions around his account, like, who all was he talking to? What Was his circle of acquaintances overwhelmingly anti-Richard? How much English did he actually know? A lot of questions. But still, we have this account that seems to back up a lot of the things that lead people to conclude that Richard III was trying to steal the throne. And at the same time, there's still a lot that's open to interpretation, like taken at face value. A lot of Richard's actions could be interpreted as loyal to his nephew, taking loyalty oaths, publicly bowing to him, allowing preparations for his coronation to go on in an apparently pretty normal way. But a lot of people believe that this was all a ruse to lure the king and the people around him into a false sense of security and to cover his own tracks. Richard, Duke of Gloucester, arrived in Northampton on April 29, 1483. There, he met up with Henry Stafford, Duke of Buckingham, Anthony Woodville, Earl Rivers, and Richard Gray, who was Elizabeth Woodville's son from her first marriage. Earl Rivers had taken the young king ahead to Stony Stratford, then doubled back to Northampton, apparently on the pretense that Northampton didn't have suitable lodgings to accommodate the king and his party, along with Gloucester, Buckingham, and all their retainers. There were a lot of retainers. (laughs) A whole lot of them. The next morning, though, Earl Rivers was locked inside the inn where he was staying. This was probably under the orders of Gloucester or Buckingham or both of them working together. Like Gloucester, 
Buckingham had a long history with the Whitbills, including being married to Elizabeth's sister Catherine when he was just 10 or 12 years old. He also had a very deep hatred and distrust of the entire family. Richard, Duke of Gloucester, Henry, Duke of Buckingham, and Richard Gray caught up with Edward V at Stony Stratford on April 30th, informing him that his uncle and others in their party had been arrested because they were plotting against him. Edward didn't believe this at all, saying that he trusted these men and that he also trusted his mother. Buckingham told the young king that he absolutely should not trust the Woodvilles. He ordered Edward's escort to return home, then arrested the king's half-brother, Richard Gray, in front of him. Some accounts describe the king as being arrested or captured at this point as well, and one of those is that of Dominic Mancini. But Mancini also seems to have misunderstood or mistaken at least part of the situation here, because he describes Edward's brother Richard as being arrested at Stony Stratford as well, but at that point, Richard was still at Westminster Abbey with his mother. It also doesn't seem like Edward thought he was a captive at this point. He wrote a letter to the Archbishop of Canterbury instructing him to safeguard the Great Seal of the Realm and to safeguard their tour of London and the treasure there. It's within the realm of possibility that Edward was coerced into writing this letter or that it was forged or that he wrote it believing that he was in danger, but it doesn't really read as though he thought he was a captive. As all of this was happening, though, Elizabeth Whitville took refuge in Westminster Abbey with her children and an entourage. Sometimes this is described as a flight for her life, and at minimum, it would have been clear to her at this point, especially if she had heard about the arrests of her kinfolk, that her efforts to put the Whitville family in an advantageous position were crumbling. Gloucester, Buckingham, and King Edward V continued on to London, and once they got there, Edward was taken to the Bishop of London's palace, where he stayed for several days. His uncle Richard repeated his oaths of fealty to the king and was formally acknowledged as Lord Protector. Preparations continued for Edward's coronation, and the Great Council discussed where the king should stay until the coronation took place. While his mother had tried to arrange a coronation for May, the final date had been set for late June to coincide with the Feast of the Nativity of St. John the Baptist. The final decision for the king's lodgings in the interim, which was suggested by the Duke of Buckingham and agreed to by the whole council, was to send Edward to the Tower of London. Okay, that sounds incredibly suspicious to a modern ear because during the Tudor era, the Tower of London became notorious primarily as a prison. We've talked about various peoples being imprisoned in the Tower on the show before, including Sir Walter Raleigh, and just in this episode, we've talked about King Henry VI being imprisoned in the Tower two different times. And while the Tower did have a prison in the 15th century, at that point, it was also a royal residence. Buckingham Palace did not exist yet and would not be built for almost another 250 years. So in addition to the fortress and prison, the Tower of London was a place where royals would go stay. It was a palace complete with the luxury accommodations that were routinely in use by people of their station. This is also a place that Edward probably would have already been familiar with since his father had frequently held court there. Monarchs stayed in the tower for at least the night before their coronation, and their coronation procession started at the tower. So when Edward V first went to the tower, it was to the royal residence and not the prison. 
The Duke of Buckingham also started trying to convince the Queen Mother to send Richard of Shrewsbury, Duke of York, to the Tower as well. There were several arguments for her to do this. Richard could be a source of comfort and companionship for his older brother, although since Richard had mostly lived in London and Edward had mostly lived at Ludlow Castle, they really might not have known each other all that well. Richard was also now next in line for the throne, and the tower was regarded as one of the safest places to be. And it would have been considered strange or even scandalous if Richard didn't attend his brother Edward's coronation. So taking him to the tower ahead of time meant his mother would not be able to keep him with her at Westminster Abbey or to try to use him as some kind of bargaining chip. Or... Maybe Buckingham just wanted both of them to be in the tower at the same time to make it easier to kill them. So many possibilities. As Buckingham was trying to convince Elizabeth to send Richard to the tower, plans for Edward's coronation were carrying on, and that was now scheduled for June 22nd. Writs were issued for the first parliament that would assemble under the new king to meet on June 25th. Young men who were eligible for knighthood were summoned to London as well so that they could be knighted at the coronation. But then, in early June, all those plans apparently went out the window when it was alleged that the marriage of the late King Edward IV to Elizabeth Whitville had not been legal because he was already married to Eleanor Talbot, the widow of Sir Thomas Butler, This information may have come from Robert Stillington, Bishop of Bath and Wells, who reportedly had performed that earlier marriage. Eleanor had died before Edward V was born, but that did not matter since she had still been living when Edward IV had married Elizabeth. The most likely time for the bishop to have delivered this information was at a royal council meeting that happened on June 8th. But reports of that meeting said there was nothing significant, and an allegation that the king's marriage had been illegal, and that consequently his son, whose coronation was weeks away, had no claim to the throne, that definitely would have been categorized as significant. Yeah, so this bishop would have been in London for the coronation. The Bishop of Bath and Wells was typically one of the bishops who escorted the new monarch. And as a bishop, he was also a member of parliament. Parliament had been summoned. But there are questions on why he would have chosen this particular moment to share this information rather than, for example, when Edward V had been born. There is some suspicion that Edward IV had even tried to buy the bishop's silence by making him a bishop in the first place. He had been a canon when this marriage to Eleanor Butler had allegedly been performed. And then Bath and Wells was the first English bishopric to open up after Edward's marriage to Elizabeth was first announced, there's this idea that maybe he was like, if you keep your mouth shut about that time you married me to a different lady, you get to be a bishop right now. It's all very speculative. <laughs> but there are also questions about whether this marriage story is even true. At the time, it was common for couples to do what is known as a pre-contract. Before witnesses, they would promise to get married, and then afterward, they would consummate the marriage. This was regarded as essentially the same as a marriage, even though it had not been formalized in a church. Some sources describe Edward's purported marriage to Eleanor as a pre-contract only, but a number of contemporary sources flatly disbelieved this entire thing and dismissed it as something that Richard had made up to undermine his nephew. 
Normally, this would be the sort of issue that would be taken up before Parliament. But because the new king had not been crowned yet, a formal Parliament could not be convened. Instead, the estates of the realm met. This was basically the same people, but not a formal Parliament. In mid-June, the estates of the realm concluded that Edward V was not the legitimate king, and they offered the crown instead to Richard, Duke of Gloucester. This was not unanimous, though, not within the estates of the realm or within the royal council. The royal council split, with the Duke of Buckingham and others who supported Richard meeting with him in secret, and the rest of the council meeting at Westminster. Immediately, at least some of the council meeting at Westminster were convinced that Gloucester's private meetings involved a plot against the king. William, Lord Hastings, had continued to back Edward as king and his uncle Richard as Lord Protector only. And during all of this, he and several other men armed themselves and went to one of these secret council meetings. Hastings reportedly attacked Richard, who hadn't yet accepted the crown and was still technically considered the Duke of Gloucester. Hastings was arrested and almost immediately beheaded. Hastings' beheading seems to have been what convinced the public of London that the Duke of Gloucester was trying to steal the throne. Elizabeth finally agreed to send her younger son to the Tower of London, and he arrived there on June 16th. And there are still questions about why, since she and her children were safe in Westminster Abbey. While there are some people who argue that she only would have sent her son away if she thought it was safe to do so, others describe her as under siege, with the Duke of Buckingham threatening to remove Richard by force if she did not comply. On June 17th, the Duke of Gloucester issued writs canceling the Parliament that was supposed to convene on June 25th. Then on June 22nd, which was supposed to have been Coronation Day, Londoners instead heard sermons that attacked Edward's claim to the throne as illegitimate. On June 25th, Anthony Whitville, Earl Rivers, Richard Gray, and others who had been part of their party to London were all beheaded. And on June 26th, 1483, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, was proclaimed to be King Richard III. Let's take a sponsor break. <laughs> Let's do. <laughs> I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding Finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. 
Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet, and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. We said at the top of the show that the prince is in the tower. In spite of almost ubiquitously being called the princes in the tower at this point, we're not princes. When he first arrived at the tower, Edward V was king. His reign as king lasted from April 9th to June 25th, 1483. And when his brother Richard arrived, he was the Duke of York and Edward's heir presumptive. He hadn't formally been crowned as a prince that I know of at this point. Once Richard III was proclaimed king, though, 
The boys were not kings or princes. They were commoners. Formal records from the time often nod to Edward's status with titles like Regis Bastardi. We really don't know what happened to them in the tower. According to the Crowland Chronicle continuations written around April of 1486, the boys stayed there, quote, under certain guard. The Great Chronicle of London contains the last written reference to anyone seeing the two boys. They were shooting bows and arrows and playing in the garden, quote, at sundry times, ending June 16th. But once they were considered commoners, they would have been moved from the royal residence to some other location. They weren't royals anymore. Dominic Mancini wrote that the boys were, quote, withdrawn to the inner apartments of the tower proper, and day by day began to be seen more rarely behind the bars and windows until at length they ceased to appear altogether. Already, there is a suspicion that they have been done away with. Mancini also describes Edward as confessing and doing penance daily, as though he thought that his death was imminent. King Richard III was crowned on July 6, 1483, and there are some references to an attempt to get the boys out of the tower after he left London on his royal tour. But sources contradict as to whether these plans were carried out, or if they were, whether they were successful. It does seem like people believe that at least one of the boys was still alive when Richard left, though. But as that account from Mancini suggests, rumors started to spread really quickly that they had been killed. And in the subsequent decades, people reported that they had heard that the boys had died pretty much by every possible means. Smothering, poisoning, stabbing, drowning, starving. And according to Rui de Sousa of Portugal, bled into a body of water that passed through the fort where they were being held until they died. Sometime after the last report of Edward and Richard being spotted outside the tower, their mother and the rest of her children left Westminster Abbey. She seemed to endorse Richard III as king, possibly because he had promised to arrange the most advantageous marriages possible for her daughters. In 1484, Parliament passed an act called Titulus Regius, which formally recognized Richard III and declared the children of Edward IV and Elizabeth Whitville to be illegitimate. It cited several reasons, including Edward's pre-contract to another woman, the fact that the marriage was secret and without the consent of the lords of the land, and because Elizabeth and her family had used sorcery to entrap the king. Sure, sure. Um, that's how that works. Of course, Richard III was not king for long. His opponents characterized him as scheming and cruel, the kind of person who would murder his own nephews, children, just to take the throne for himself. Richard's only son died in 1484 and his wife the following year, and the Duke of Buckingham turned against him. Yorkists invaded England with the help of French and Scottish mercenaries, and Richard was killed at the Battle of Bosworth Field on August 22, 1485. Succeeding him as king was Henry Tudor, also known as King Henry VII. He was the last surviving man of the Lancastrian line, and he married a York. That was Elizabeth of York, the oldest sister of Edward V. People who thought Richard III was a usurper already really thought Elizabeth was the rightful queen, so Henry's marrying her tightened his claim to the throne. 
In fact, there had been some discussion, some frankly pretty gross discussion, that Richard III had thought about marrying his niece himself for the same reason after his wife died or maybe even before. But Henry could not marry Elizabeth if she was considered illegitimate, so he had to get Parliament to repeal the titulus regius. And after they did, Henry also ordered all previous copies of Titulus Regius to be destroyed. And for a time, the text of that document was lost until it was rediscovered in the Crowland Chronicle. Yeah, one of those chroniclers had copied it in there. It does not appear that Henry launched any kind of investigation into what had happened to the princes in the tower or into Richard's actions in 1483, possibly because such an investigation would have unearthed information that would have undermined Henry's own claim to the throne. But it was during the reigns of Henry VII and Henry VIII that people started printing more specific accounts of what had happened in the Tower, including naming names. In the 16th century Anglica Historia, Italian polliterae Virgil wrote that Richard III had ordered Robert Brackenbury, constable of the Tower, to kill Edward V and his brother. When Brackenbury did not, Richard told Sir James Tyrrell to do it. In Fabian's Chronicle, Robert Fabian, who died in 1512, also named Tyrrell, or possibly another servant of the king. By this point, Sir James Tyrrell was dead. He had been convicted of treason and executed in 1502. I had a whole explanation of what happened in here, but it was very long. Tyrrell reportedly confessed to killing Edward and Richard sometime between his conviction on May 2nd and his execution on May 6th, but no copy of this purported confession exists anywhere. The first really specific account of the boys' deaths was in the history of Richard III by Sir Thomas More, secretary and advisor to Henry VIII. More wrote that Richard III had the boys shut up, removing everyone from them except a servant called Black Will or William Slaughter. In his words, they, quote, lingered in thought and heaviness till this traitorous death delivered them of that wretchedness, for Sir James Tyrrell devised that they should be murdered in their beds. To that execution whereof he appointed Miles Forrest, one of the four that kept them, a fellow fleshed in murder before time. To him he joined one John Dighton, his own horsekeeper, a big, broad, square, strong knave. This is one of those very old documents that writes the word murder like murder, which I always love. It's so good. Um <laughs> And we could get into a whole conversation about how that linguistic uh, transition happened, but we've got more to this show to go on. Moore goes on to say that at about midnight, Forrest and Dighton came into the boys' room, wrapped them in their bedclothes, and smothered them with their feather beds and pillows. Once Tyrell had confirmed that they were dead, he, quote, caused those murderers to bury them at the stairfoot, meatly deep in the ground under a heap of stones. Moore goes on to say that Richard III was brought to the scene and ordered their bodies moved to a better place because they were sons of a king, before adding sarcastically, quote, lo, the heart courage of a king, for he would recompense a detestable murder with a solemn obloquy. 
Of course, William Shakespeare, writing during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, used Moore's work as a major source for his play, Richard III, which depicts Richard ordering Tyrell to carry out the crime, and Tyrell returning afterwards saying, quote, the tyrannous and bloody deed is done, the most arch of piteous massacre, that ever yet this land was guilty of, Dighton and Forrest, whom I did suburn to do this ruthless piece of butchery, although they were fleshed villains, bloody dogs, melting with tenderness and kind compassion, wept like two children in their death's sad stories. Of course, the Tudors had very good reasons to want Richard III to look like a usurper because otherwise Henry VII had forced a legitimate king off the throne. So at this point, it is generally, but not universally, believed that Edward V and his brother Richard died at the Tower of London by the end of 1483. And this idea that Richard III ordered James Tyrrell to kill them, that's pretty widespread. But Richard III definitely isn't the only suspect. Another is Henry Stafford, second Duke of Buckingham, who came up a lot in this episode. And this idea he would have been trying to ingratiate himself to Richard and to protect Richard's claim to the throne. Another is John Howard, Duke of Norfolk, who became Lord High Steward under Richard III, pretty much with similar reasoning. But Richard III is not the only monarch who stood to benefit from Edward and his brother being out of the picture. The other is actually Henry VII. Making Elizabeth of York legitimate so he could marry her would have made Edward and Richard legitimate as well. So if they were still alive, Henry would have no real claim to the throne. So there are people who think the boys lived in the tower for a couple of years hidden away until Henry VII had them killed so that he could become king. Other people interpret this more as just confirmation that they were definitely dead by this point. There are also, though, people who believed that at least one of the boys lived for much longer and people who claimed that they were one of them. A man named Lambert Semnel, who pretended to be the son of George Plantagenet, first Duke of Clarence, had originally planned to claim that he was Richard, Duke of York. Then in 1490, a man calling himself Richard of England made this same claim, and this could really be its own episode. This man, called Perkin Warbeck, convinced a number of very powerful people, including James IV of Scotland and Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I, that he really was Richard Duke of York. He eventually confessed to being an imposter, though. Yeah, we actually did an episode on Perkin Warbeck on Criminalia in our imposter season. Oh, nice. I was wondering that, and I forgot to ask. Oh, yes, that's a, a rich imposter story. So there is also a burial record in Kent for a Richard Plantagenet dated from December 22nd, 1550. Elizabeth Whitville had a cousin living not far from the burial site, so some people have interpreted this to mean that Richard, Duke of York, somehow escaped the tower, perhaps while Richard III was on that royal tour and secretly lived out the rest of his life with his mother's kin. On July 17, 1674, human remains were found in a chest under a stone staircase outside the White Tower at the Tower of London during some renovations that had been ordered by Charles II. People who examined these remains concluded that they belonged to two people who were about 11 and 13 years old. John Knight, chief surgeon to the king, concluded that they were indeed Edward V and Richard of Shrewsbury, Duke of York. 
These remains were put on display before being placed in Henry VII Lady Chapel at Westminster Abbey in an urn designed by Sir Christopher Wren. So, bones of children under a staircase, just like Sir Thomas More said. But More had also written that Richard III had ordered the bodies moved to a more suitable location. And these were not the first bones found at the Tower of London, suspected of being Edward V and his brother. Other bones were unearthed at the Tower in 1610, 1622, and 1647. Pretty much every time anyone found a smallish set of remains in the Tower, people immediately thought that it was the prince's, including one time when it turned out to have been an ape that had escaped from the royal menagerie. It's also not clear what happened to these earlier finds and whether any of them were the same bones later found under the staircase. In 1933, Lawrence E. Tanner, keeper of the muniments and librarian of Westminster Abbey, and anatomist William Wright, dean of the London Hospital Medical College, opened up the urn. They examined the bones and published their findings as recent investigations regarding the fate of the princes in the tower in the journal Archaeologia. Dentist George Northcroft had also examined the teeth to try to determine the age of the people whose bones they were, And they concluded that, along with a a lot of other random animal bones that were in there, there were two sets of human bones in the urn or belonging to children of the right ages to be the princes in the tower. Although this sounds pretty conclusive, this investigation was not particularly thorough. It seems in a lot of ways to have been intended to confirm that these were the princes and not to, like, actually find the truth of the situation. It definitely didn't follow methods or use technologies that would be in use today. In 2018, Dr. John Ashdown Hill traced the mitochondrial DNA line of the princes in the tower. Ashdown Hill's earlier work had been part of the identification of the remains of Richard III. This made news in 2018, shortly after Ashdown Hill's death. This work could be used to confirm whether the bones from the urn at Westminster Abbey or any other bones that might be dug up really belong to Edward V and his brother. And as for that paper we mentioned up at the top of the show, that was More on a Murder, The Deaths of the Princes in the Tower and Historiographical Implications for the Regimes of Henry VII and Henry VIII. That was by Tim Thornton, published in the January 2021 edition of the journal History. Thornton argues that two men named Edward and Miles Forrest were the sons of the Miles Forrest that Sir Thomas More had named as one of the murderers. According to Thornton, Moore would have known both Edward and the younger Miles Forrest. Edward was a servant of Henry VIII's bedchamber, and the younger Miles was an advisor to Cardinal Wolsey and a messenger between Henry VIII's court and the embassy in Bruges where Moore was working. It's also possible that John Dighton was living in Calais while Moore was also there, so Moore may have known Dighton as well. If Thornton is correct in these identifications, then Thomas More may have personally known the sons of one of the alleged killers and possibly one of the alleged killers himself. So it's possible that More's account included details he learned directly from them. That still leaves some unanswered questions, though, like if you or your father had murdered the King of England, why would you tell Sir Thomas More about it? I I do wonder... And unburdening, perhaps. (laughs) Uh, I have a very quick piece of listener mail to take us out of this episode. 
And now that we have gone through this whole recording and hopefully caught all the times where I typed the word Richard when I meant the word Edward or vice versa, this email seems particularly appropriate because it is about um, confusing names in our Unearthed episode recently. This is from Gray. Uh, Gray's email was titled, Correction, Unearthed, Columbian Harmony Cemetery. And it says, prefacing this with all the love and devotion, but wanted to let you know there was a tiny mistake in the most recent Unearthed episode. The Columbian Harmony Cemetery stones are being relocated from King George County, Virginia, where they were found in the riverbank, to a memorial park across the Potomac River in Landover, Prince George's County, Maryland. To make it even more confusing, there is a Prince George County, no apostrophe S, in Virginia, near Petersburg, which is the home of the Tombstone House. (laughs) Uh, All the best, Gray. Gray sent a couple of links, one, an article from CNN about the gravestones, and another, an Atlas Obscura piece about the Tombstone House. Uh, This made me laugh even before we recorded this episode and kept just messing up Richard and Edward all (laughs) over the place. Um, Partly because when I previously used to live in Somerville, Massachusetts, I lived on a street where the street crossed the city line into Cambridge uh, and had the house, the same house numbers on either side. Um, And boy, did that confuse people visiting us, people delivering food. Uh, Not so much the mail carrier. The mail carrier knew what was up, but, but, you know, more... Uh, overnight deliveries were often overnighted to the other city. Uh, And this just reminded me of all that. So thank you, Gray. Uh, I think I just sort of conflated multiple things when I was writing up that installment into Unearthed. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. And we're all over social media at Mist in History, which is where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and wherever else you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? 
Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.